taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast and our scripture for this podcast comes to you from from John chapter 21 verse 25 which says and there are many other things that Jesus did which if every one of them were written down I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written this is the word of God thanks be to God Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Welcome aboard, everyone. Hope all is well and that you spent time reflecting on the Resurrection Day and spent time with your family and your church family. Uh, we we had a, certainly had a wonderful time uh with ours we had uh, spent time you know uh discussing the resurrection in church and then we got a chance to be able to uh have a whole day of just family gathering and just and being part of each other and and uh, grilling uh cooking food um laughing uh playing doing things man we just had a great time here at the ranch and just had time being able to just spend and enjoy god's God's beautiful weather that he provided that day. My word, what a gorgeous day. So let's welcome on uh, the man that is in the last days. Well, <laughs> the last days of his doctoral program, at least, <laughs> Brian Chilton. Yeah, it's all official now. It's uh, I've signed up for the <laughs> dissertation program. Come to find out that uh, uh, they, sent, they sent a uh, handbook to us that had uh, seven different milestones of the dissertation and come to find out that I've already uh, passed the first milestone. Didn't even realize it. Uh, getting into the classes, getting the committee together, and so uh, wow. get, getting the uh, topic down pat, and or at least you know attempting to. And so away we go. <laughs> mm. So you have to gather all the your your the people that you want to have uh, review it. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, so for doctoral for doctoral dissertation, uh, what you need is you need to have a committee chair, and you need to have two readers. And the committee chair is the person with whom you work the most. Um, the committee chair will will help steer you in the right direction. In fact, uh, my committee chair, um, great guy. I, I guess I can go ahead and say uh, it's Dr. Leo Purser. Uh, very honored to have him. The man is he would never, you know, the man is a, is is a genius of a guy in my opinion. And now some people will call me saying I'm trying to brown nose. That's not the case. I mean, because he can take a Greek New Testament. I've seen him do this in class. Take a Greek New Testament and read it like he's reading from an English translation. He's that good with it. So the topic I'm wow. the topic I'm looking at, and uh, I need someone who's a master at the biblical languages and, and especially mm-hmm. Greek and he is and so I consider him a good friend as well so uh, also kudos to him uh, he is a uh, he did his PhD work at Baylor University and uh, the Baylor Bears won the 2021 NCAA basketball championship so uh, sick of Bears <laughs> that's good deal yeah and you're 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 uh, you're from the Liberty University so absolutely um, 
Yeah, so, yeah, that's kind of cool. Go Flames. That's pretty, yeah. <laughs> and I saw something today. I, I don't know how accurate this is. I just kind of saw it in happenstance that Liberty Flames football team is uh, supposed to be ranked fairly high this upcoming year. So hopefully they'll do well this year. We'll see. Wow, that's awesome. Good. Cool. So the topic of our podcast today is the 40 days. So when we're talking about the 40 days, what 40 days are we referring to? We're referring to the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So through that 40 and, days... And let me Jesus, just add a little corrective there because there's actually, there's actually 50 days between... Uh, right, right. So, so there were ten. There's a ten day difference, but so Jesus ascended on the fortieth day after uh, Passover. Well, after his resurrection, and then um, the Passover would have happened around fifty days. So there may have been a few days in between there, but generally speaking, around ten days, give or take a few. Right. Uh, between just just to kind of add a little clarification. That's my right OCD coming in. Yep. Yep. No, that's that's good. That that helps that helps everything out because that tells us, you know, for forty days Jesus was on the earth um after the resurrection, before the ascension and and it's important that we um I feel that we, we cover this now that we're past um you know, resurrection Sunday and uh and all the events that led up to it, uh the crucifixion and the all of those things that happen, I think it's good that we take a little time and cover this, especially since we covered it with the last few podcasts. And um, on the Bellator Christie website, you have the defense of the resurrection and so on. I think it'd be really good to have this all mixed in. And that's, so that's why sure. we chose that topic. Well, and, and let me say, you know, I, I am um, in my personal devotional life, I have a, we have a prayer garden, and I want to thank my mother in law for giving us a, a, a bench, a, st- a concrete bench to go along with the uh, the other objects we have in our prayer garden. And we're wanting to really spruce this thing up over time. Uh, we have some other projects that, that uh, supersede this right now uh, with the house and things of that nature in the yard and whatnot. But uh, eventually we want to, you know, have really some flowers out there. Have I mean, just we want to spruce it up. We'd like to really spruce it up. But if you notice the pictures I post on Facebook, um, I do have a cloth on the cross every day of the year except for Good Friday and Good Saturday. It's left bare those two days, but every other day it has a colored cloth. And this is actually a tradition carried on in numerous denominations, Anglican denomination, Episcopalian, the Methodist Church, uh, Catholic Church, several other denominations. I think even the Orthodox Church does this. And, and different churches have little nuances they do. But it's interesting because the white cloth goes on the cross Easter Sunday, but it stays on for 40 days. So when we talk about, if you want to use Easter, you want to use, I'm using Easter because of, of, the, of the sense being used in church history. There are actually 40 days in Easter, of Easter. So, so the resurrection day is not just celebrated on that Easter Sunday or first resurrection Sunday. It's carried on for 40 days, representing the fact that people didn't just see Jesus alive on day one of the resurrection. It was for 40 days. And really, for me, it's amazing to look out and to see that cross with a white uh, cloth on it and just realize, hey, we're still celebrating Resurrection Sunday. Not, you know, And quite honestly... We need to celebrate it 
365 days a year as far as I'm concerned. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to get into the questions right off the bat because I know we got we got quite a few here, and I know we're probably going to dig into a few of them pretty deep. So um, after the resurrection, Jesus continued his ministry before the ascension, and John records something powerful in John 20. 30 and 31 verses 30 and 31 you want to read those 20 30 and 31 yeah it says the uh, um, it says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book and these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. By the way, I'm reading from the new 2020 edition of the CSB, and they went back to using Messiah uh, rather than Christ, and uh, because sure. it has a greater Hebrew connotation to it than, than you know Christos does. But anyhow, um, so yeah, so it's important to understand, and, and, uh, and that's why one of the reasons we read the passage of Scripture we read at the outset of the podcast the disciples or the the evangelists I want to use the title evangelists using this as understood talking about the writers of scripture we I personally believe Matthew and, and John are the two apostles um, especially Matthew Matthew why would you have a tax collector being the writer of the gospel I mean that just makes no sense there's got to be some truth to it but using the term evangelist, the four evangelists, the writers of the Gospels, they select and chose the the events in Jesus' life that were important to them. Were there other recorded teachings and miracles of Jesus? Probably so. You know, probably so. In the recollection, in the minds and recollections of people who had experienced Jesus. The, the amazing thing is there are probably numerous other fascinating <laughs> yeah. stories that could be told about mm-hmm. Jesus uh, in his early years. I mean, there are some apoc- apocryphal uh, books that try to record. Are there any? Is there any truth to them? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it could be that some of it is based on some truth. For all we know, I mean, there's really, we really mm-hmm. don't know. But. Um, there are many other stories that could be told about Jesus, and John's just telling us that they couldn't record everything. And I think he's also given a nod to the other synoptic gospels that they recorded things about Jesus. He's recording things about Jesus left out of the first three gospels, yeah. and there's even more material that could be told that's not even found in the four gospels. And so Jesus, um, I think... Uh, I think this tells us that Jesus performed many miracles in Galilee. I think Luke also notes, and in, in, I want to read you a passage of Scripture. This is Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 3. It says, at, so let me just go on. He's, you know, he's talking about, he introduces, Luke introduces himself to Theophilus after writing the first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And here, here we go in verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many polois, tecmerios. Tecmerios is convincing proofs. Now what are convincing mm. proofs? This is a legal term used in a court of law. Tecmerios or tecmerion 
this is this is uh, this is the definition given by the Lao Nida Dictionary. That which causes something to be known as verified or confirmed by evidence, proof, convincing proof. In a number of languages, convincing proof is rendered as that which causes one to know for sure or with certainty. So what wow. else did Jesus do? We don't know. Yeah. And, and this but is what one. it was was done for certain. Yeah, yeah, done with to certainly prove that he had risen from the dead, and it was him. Uh, as amazing as that was to consider, I mean, so and that's why I read something on uh, the philo- philosophical theology page on Facebook, where someone was coming off and saying that the miracle stories didn't mesh and it showed that they were fiction. That's hogwash. I mean, the miracle stories, if you do just a little bit of work. They they harmonize together very well if you put just a little bit of effort to it. Um, they, they do harmonize. And what what do you mean by a little bit of effort? Just actually reading it and writing Re- stuff down, pondering it? Reading it, looking through the timelines that's given. Uh, so, mm-hmm. for instance, we hear about in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I think it's either Luke or Mark alludes to Peter having an encounter with the risen Jesus. So, so just follow the timeline. So we know that Peter has an individual experience with the risen Jesus by himself very early on. So if you follow the narrative, the women go to the tomb first. They're told by the, the women, I mean the angels at the tomb, that Jesus had risen. Mary Magdalene is with the women. They go back to the disciples. Peter and John, one of them, one gospel records Peter only, the other gospel records another gospel records Peter and John. There's no contradiction. They run to the tomb. John mm-hmm. immediately believes. Peter's questioning what happened. John runs back believing seeing the linen cloths, which may be the shroud of turn, and the shroud of turn may have been one of those cloths. Peter is yep. left stunned, not knowing what to think. They both leave the tomb. We're not told where, to my knowledge, we're not told where Peter goes. We know John goes back. But mm-hmm. uh, but John runs back. He outran Peter to the tomb. Mary sees Jesus <laughs> at the tomb. <laughs> Mary sees Jesus at the tomb. We're not told where Peter went. Peter may just be walking right. by the roadside thinking to himself, what happened? What in the world happened? What just happened? Yeah. And so it may be that after Jesus was seen by Mary Magdalene, then he goes to Peter. And and shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, we even know we even know that it, through the First Corinthians Creed that at some point Jesus appears to James by himself, his own brother, James, Jesus's own stepbrother. Um, he appears to James at some point. We don't know when it happens. I think it's probably quite honestly, most of the disciples didn't even see Jesus as a group. The twelve, the eleven disciples didn't see Jesus together until that evening, after the two disciples on the road to Emmaus sees him, sees him in Emmaus, um, and I believe it's probably a husband wife duo there. Quite probably doesn't have to be, but quite probably it is. Um, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, is seen by the apostles. But what is Jesus? The question I have is, what is Jesus doing between the earliest appearances and the later appearance in Jerusalem? It may be that he spent time with Peter by himself. It may also be that he spent time with James and his other brothers and sisters and Mary, the his own mother. I mean, why wouldn't Jesus go back to Mary after she's been so faithful? You know, and have have a have most of the day with her for all we know, and his brothers and sisters. Well, we don't know. So just because they're focusing on different aspects doesn't mean there's a contradiction in the stories. 
actually, yeah. if you if you put them all together, they complement one, one another very well, uh, and it's mm-hmm. very intriguing when you look at this from four different angles. They're not trying to copy one another. It's interesting that right. they do fit together. If you if you lay down a little bit of groundwork, put down a little bit of effort, um, they really come together very well. Hmm. And it's funny though, the the level of scrutiny that the gospels have gone through to to uh, you could say debunk or say that they are um, not true, and if you actually took the time to do that same level of scrutiny and actually review it i think you'd come to the same conclusion that we just that we just talked about that y- you know you, you move your presuppositions out of the way and just read it and and figure the timelines out it would explain itself oh absolutely most certainly but but people yeah. don't want to come to the scripture with that type of uh uh, acceptance. They are. It's instead of um, innocent until proven guilty. For many people, it's guilty until proven innocent. And the level and degree of evidence that's required by some is outrageous. If you were to have the same level of evidence required for any event in history, then we couldn't even know who wrote the Constitution of the United States. I mean, even though we have it documented, mm-hmm. you could say, "Well, how do we know that they wrote it?" Uh, you could push and say, "Well, John Hancock. He he signed." The, the, he signed the document. How do we know it was him? Maybe someone was forging his name for all we know. Uh, or you say, you know, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Well, how do we know? Uh, you know, mm. it could have yeah. been someone was, was uh, um, well, like for instance, some, some people think that uh, someone else stood in the place of Jesus on the cross, which is hogwash. Uh, is poppycock really? I mean, so so a person could also say, well, maybe someone stood in for George Washington and just said that they were George Washington. They wore a similar wig as George Washington. I mean, see, if you go down the same route, uh, you can make yourself skeptical. You can you can at some point you have to become skeptical of your own skepticism. Because if you if you keep going down this route with anything in history, you can cause yourself to doubt even the most fundamental of historical evidences, if you have a mind to. Wow. Yeah. So the forty days were an essential time for discipleship. What what key elements were v- revealed during this time? Well, while we can't necessarily prove all of what Jesus taught, I do think if we look look in the Gospel of Luke uh, at at the experience in the road of Emmaus, I think we have an idea. Uh, so we're not told specifically, um, and we may have some some um, some evidence in Acts if memory serves. But let's let's look to the last chapter first of all in the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at chapter twenty four. And uh, he, this is where Cleopas and another disciple, most likely his wife, in my opinion, not everybody agrees, but that's okay. They can be wrong if they want to. <laughs> just I was just going to say, you're going to say they could be wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so he, the, the one named Cleopas, Jesus appears to them. They didn't know it was Jesus. And uh, Jesus asked them, you know, what's going on? And Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, Jesus placed dumb. 
so he said, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And he talks about how he was handed over to the chief priests and leaders and was crucified. And since moreover, some of our women from the group astounded us, they arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who who said he was alive. And and since so those some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Now, could it have been that other disciples went with John and Peter? Probably so. He said some of us, some of them went. So it may have been that more than them uh, went and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to him, to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. So, let's follow the narrative here. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all of the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave them the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they, as they, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? And that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. But the point is, is that Jesus took the time to explain the scriptures going from Moses all the way through the prophets, explaining what was written about him. So he takes mm-hmm. the time to teach them these things. And so I think that he's going through and he is giving, like for instance, I'm going through the Ph.D., program he is giving them the final capstone course on christianity through those 40 days and i think he's preparing them for them for them to have their own dissertation experience which is to take the message he presents and deliver it to other people accurately and so man jesus through these 40 days in my opinion i think we have evidence of it here that he is uh, that's what he's doing with the disciples as he meets with them now I think in Acts, if I'm not mistaken, let me go back and look. I may be wrong here. I think it said something similar to that, but again, I may be wrong. Let me look and see. Um, uh, so he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. He presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. Uh, he commanded them not to leave to Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise, which is which is Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. And so it seems to be even here that he is teaching them and then giving them marching instructions. Notice he says in verse 8, Acts 1-8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, starting at home where they were, in all Judea and Samaria, going out from there and to the ends of the earth. And that's a perfect model there, Curtis, for, for missions work. Mission starts at home, branches out from there, and then goes out into the uttermost parts of the earth. Yeah, so that's I, I talk to in men's ministry when I'm talking to some of the guys, you know, it says, you know, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then on to Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And I always use the term Judea is is meant to mean, you know, you, you, is a picture model of take care of what's at home first. Teach Teach your children. 
love on your wife. That's where your ministry first starts. Then God blesses that, moves you out into, and then you're able to, your whole family's able to move out into, you know, um, Judea and Samaria, so on and yeah, so forth. And, and you would be good su- model. You would be surprised how many ministers there are out there, and how many Christians there are out there who believe that they have to sacrifice their families for ministry. And mm. I, I think what you just said is something that people need to remember. In fact, you know what the number one article in you know uh, at Bellator Christie this year is? It's, it startled mm. me. I wasn't expecting it, but I wrote an article back. I think it was twenty seventeen called "Family Is Your First Ministry," and oh, wow. that is the number one article this year. Uh, thus far, uh, now that can change because we're not even halfway through the year. But but thus far, uh, you know what about a quarter in to the to the year? Uh, that's that's the number one article thus far this year. And so I, I'm that's hoping awesome. people will get that and understand that family is our first ministry. Right, and it, not only does it apply as family our first in ministry, but also where you where you're planted where you're at that's your first ministry so so within your town within the townspeople um you know moving outward that way i think that's that's such a key element to to remember because if your family doesn't know who christ is what good is your ministry doing telling others when those that are closest to you don't even know. Yeah, and if there's one thing that I have uh, that has become blindingly obvious to me doing chaplaincy ministry is the fact that our mm. churches are failing our communities. Uh, that They are. Our churches are failing our communities because I can't tell you the number of stories, not only me, in fact, other chaplains have, have even more stories, and obviously I, I won't give you specifics on this because of HIPAA laws, but, but just, just using generalities, I am amazed at how many individuals have have described how they've been hurt by churches, how they've been condemned by churches, but they mm. don't realize, when we just simply tell, tell them about the love of God, it's amazing mm. what an impact that has on them, uh, on any individual. Um, now, some people have hardened their hearts and won't listen, but for the majority of people, majority, I dare say 90, 85% at least, if not 95%, when you tell them that God loves them, it has a profound effect on their lives. And I think we are failing as, a, as churches because people in our communities don't know that we care about them. They don't know that God loves them. And that is a travesty, in my opinion. Mm. That's, yeah. See, and you're right on that front line, you know, dealing with that, you know, that level. I don't want to say panic because that's not always is it a panic. Um, but it's it's a the, the front line of those final days where people need to hear the truths of God, God's love. Mm-hmm you know what what you know what they did in their life really doesn't matter at that moment what matters is that that right then and there yeah yeah that's, and, uh, and it's and it's, yeah. Re- and it's revolutionized my life i'll be honest because you just stop to consider that at the end of our lives our politics aren't going to matter uh and i'm not saying politics is unimportant i'm not saying that at all but at the end of our lives 
a lot of the things we we focus on in life aren't going to make aren't going to really matter to us. What's going to matter to us is the relationship we have with God and the relationship we have with those closest to us. Mm. That that's what's really going to matter when 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 the hammer hits the nail when the when when the rubber meets the road. That's what's ultimately going to matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amen. So, how many people potentially could have interacted with Jesus during this time period? You know, it's difficult to say. Uh, we know of at least, and I think maybe we mentioned this last week or week before. I know we know of at least five hundred people who saw Jesus alive at one time. Uh, the number mm-hmm. could be higher than that. Now, the CSB translates it brothers and sisters and that's a big question i have does it does the text mean brothers and sisters or does it mean literally just brethren paul only or the creed only records men who have seen jesus Hmm. resurrected so could it be that they're only counting men in that number i don't know uh it's if they are then the 500 people may go up to 1,000, 1,500, maybe 2,000. If you do something similar to what you do with the feeding of the 5,000, we know there 5, that 000, yeah. there were 20,000 people, more most likely, who were there with Jesus. It could be that there yeah, were 2,000. That was an opening opening baseball game of Tex- in Texas. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> 20,000 people. Yeah. But, but, you know, it may have been, been 2,000 for all we know. I mean, we don't know. I mean, that's just what's mm-hmm. been preserved by the creed. Um, there may have been numerous occasions when Jesus met with large crowds in Galilee. Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't know. We know that there's, there's the potential that Jesus met with a large crowd when he gave his message in Galilee, given the Great Commission. We know there's another large crowd gathered around Jesus when he uh, ascends into heaven. There may be other cases where there are multiple people. We're told about when Jesus meets the, the disciples at the uh, seashore in, in, in the Sea of Galilee, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that there's the disciples there. But if Capernaum, the, the way it's structured... Uh, there are many buildings, many many uh, buildings and houses next to the sea. Most certainly, they would have seen a fire going on where they're broiling fish. There may have been other people there as well with the disciples yeah. and Jesus. Um, it's really difficult to say, but I dare I dare say the number is probably a lot larger than what we have ever considered. Mm. I would say I would guess probably in the thousands. Yeah. Yeah, and you just think about that—the the potential of <laughs> the the potential of it being a hallucination is is blown out of the water just by that very fact of of looking at all the if you put just even the numbers of people that were interacted just in what is written without having to think about or adding to like like we did with the feeding of the 5000 just that number in itself the raw numbers that are written um that that that's impossible yeah. well psychologically it's impossible i don't know who in the world came up with the idea of mass hallucinations but that's impossible psychologically to begin with because a hallucination is an individualized state that occurs when someone's under great distress 
they're, or they're psychologically imbalanced, or they have some type of mental disorder where they then it doesn't just happen one time. Most time the hallucinations are frightening and are are uh, negative and de- not positive. And the vast majority of the times that people in their, if they're in their right mind, maybe they've been medically induced to have hallucinations, they can tell the difference between the hallucination and reality. I spoke with a man not long ago, who who uh, or a woman, excuse me, a woman, uh, uh, several years ago when I was in pastoral ministry, who was taking medicine. She saw snakes on the wall, but she knew they weren't real. She knew they weren't real. She knew that it was medically induced. Hallucinations are not transformative the way the resurrection experiences were, were, and furthermore, hallucinations are individualized mental things that happen to people under extreme circumstances. The disciples have no signs whatsoever of being uh, psychologically imbalanced. They have no signs whatsoever of doing any type of drug or anything like that. And furthermore, they have no reason to even anticipate that there's going to be a resurrection. This floored them. They didn't think that this was even going to happen. No one had the interpretation that the Messiah was going to rise uh, before the end of time. Yeah, it even says that in in John on the road to Emmaus when he talks talks to them. It says, well, you know, and, and, uh, and this is the third day and, you know, nothing's happened. Yeah. So they weren't expecting to meet, be met by Jesus on the road. And if they did, if they did, every all the disciples would have been there early that morning. I mean, the only reason the women, oh, yeah. the only reason the women went to right. the tomb, is because they didn't have time to properly bear to, to properly anoint the body of Jesus. Uh, you know, p- people ask the question, well, then why did, why would they have even gone if uh, they if they knew they couldn't move the stone? Well, they knew the guards were there. And so they were probably hoping that the, and they knew the order was just to preserve the stone until the early morning, you know, because some of them had said, well, he he said that on the third day he would rise again, so let's let's keep that. Well, they probably thought that if they talked to the guards, maybe they would let them in. You know, they they gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe they would roll the stone for them, just to allow them allow them to anoint the body. And of course, they could have overseen the process if they wanted to. I think that would be an easy answer. But when they didn't see the guards there, then they were going. They asked. Then they probably asked the question, "Well, who's going to move the stone?" Well, no one was there. Uh, well, the stone was moved already, and which completely floored them. So, I mean, I think there are ways around these things if we simply just give time so, yeah, and space. Think, think, think through them. Yeah, ponder them. So it sure seems like the authorities could have snuffed out Christianity if they produced a body. How do you think they felt when they couldn't? Well, again, we can only speculate, but looking at Gamaliel's response, um, it seemed like the leaders were, uh, some were concerned that the movement was going to take off, whereas others seemed that they thought it was going to fizzle out. But Gamaliel's response is quite fascinating, and this is in the fifth chapter of Acts. Uh, Let me flip over to it here. And this is towards the end of the chapter. This is after Peter and John are uh, the stand before the Sanhedrin, and boy, 
didn't didn't Peter have yeah. a transformation? I mean, because look at verse twenty nine. Peter and the apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than people." The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered. By hanging him on a tree. Wow. What happened to yeah. Peter who denied Jesus? <laughs> he knew Jesus three times to a woman who was the yep. servant of the high priest. Uh, there was definitely a dramatic change in Peter. So when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But here we go in verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. By the way, this is Paul's teacher, if you remember. Right. This is yep. Paul's teacher and a very famed rabbi of the day. A teacher of the law who was respected by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're going to do or about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be someone, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. So here again, if the resurrection didn't happen, the same thing would have happened to Christianity. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all of his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And they were persuaded by them. And powerful. Yeah, absolutely powerful. Now, some people will ask, well, what about other things like, uh, you know, Mormonism, you know, the teachings of Joseph Smith and whatnot? It does seem like there are some teachings that still flourish. Well, eventually the truth is brought out. The, the truth eventually comes out, mm-hmm. you know, with these different movements, or like David Koresh, or like, um, you know, d- different things like that. The truth is event- eventually comes out, and people can see it for themselves. So the same thing holds true. I think Gamaliel's advice is very wise. Just believe it in the hands of God. If it's of God, it, you, you, you can't stop it. You'll be fighting against God. But if it isn't of God, it's going to fizzle out. So... There were some people who were concerned uh, that uh, that this was going to take off. There were other people who thought it was going to fizzle out. Um, you know, obviously there was some the great mystery that happened with the body of Jesus. Uh, for some people, it may have you know led them to believe if, if they didn't see the resurrections. For some people, it may they may have been convinced by the moving of the Holy Spirit, the the miracles that were done in Jesus's name. Uh, but then for others, it may have been mm. it may have been something. It's kind it's kind of like. Um, Thomas Aquinas' message, someone said that Thomas Aquinas said this. I, I can't find where he said it, but um, it, it's, it's the, st- the statement goes, uh, for those who believe, uh, no evidence is necessary. For those who choose not to believe, no amount of evidence will suffice. And I think mm. that um, is, is a very true statement. That's yeah, not to say how true that is. That's not to say that evidence doesn't coerce and convince, but it's to say if someone is adamantly opposed to a teaching or opposed to a movement, no matter how much evidence there may be, it could very well be that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, stands before them, and they'll say, "Well, that must have been the burrito I ate last night." Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, you know th- there will be some people like that, but. Um, I think that's kind of that's kind of the the approach that uh, the early leaders took. Again, we only have little snippets, but I think even from Acts chapter five, we can kind of get a little insight, uh, kind of peer into a little bit of the mindset that was going on at the time. Mm. 
So even after seeing the resurrection, or the resurrected Jesus, why did the disciples go back to what they knew, um, kind of like their professions? Or were they just confused on what to do? I, I'm not convinced that, that they went back to their professions. The, the only exception may have been Thomas. Uh, mm-hmm. Thomas, we don't know what happened to him on that first Easter Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples late that afternoon, but Thomas was not in the company of, with him. I mean, the, some texts say 11, but it was the 10 on that occasion, but it was 11 a week after. If you follow the narrative, Thomas yeah. didn't see Jesus the first Sunday, but a week it wasn't until a week after. So he heard all these reports. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I see the nail prints in his hands, put my finger in them, stick my hand in the side. Until I see those things, I'm not going to believe. And mm. Jesus appeared to him a week later. He kind of held him in suspense for a little while. He, he appeared to him. Could Thomas have gone back and tried to restart the business? I think he probably did. That's my opinion. But again, I can't prove that. I, I don't know necessarily. I think the disciples, the other disciples, saw Jesus early enough to, that, that they didn't do that. Now, did they still go fishing? Yeah. You know, you, you can you can take the man from fishing, but you can't take the fishing out of the man. So so the first chance it's they got boat. Yeah. First chance they got when they were around the sea, they saw water and they say, Hey, let's go fishing, as good fishermen do. And so uh I'm not necessarily convinced that that's what they did, but now there may have been times like we see with Paul where he had to uh, be a tent maker, where he uh, had a business on the side along with doing ministry, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Sometimes that may become necessary, Um, but I I do think for the majority, I think if you read the letters of Paul, Paul even talks about that the majority of the disciples lived off the gospel, uh, meaning that they were in full-time ministry. Mm. and again, the only reason for that is because of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you just hear you hear people saying that the that the you know the disciples were you know scared or or scattered, and so they just went back to doing what they do. And it, as you read the as you read the scriptures, I don't see that. And that's but but I wanted to ask that question because there's a lot of people that do think. Um, that that um, well, it's, it does say in there that Peter did go. Um, let's go fishing. Well, it doesn't mean that he's going back to doing what he did. He's just he knows how to fish, and they're sitting by the sea, and they're hungry, and <laughs> let's go fishing. It's yeah. you know, it's pretty and, simple. And even if they did that for a while, while the church was getting started. Uh, well, we do know that, that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until Pentecost. Um, they waited in Jerusalem. The, the church began in Jerusalem, the same place where Jesus had been crucified, died, buried, resurrected. They were in Jerusalem for a period of time, and then eventually they moved north. They moved out of Jerusalem. And get this, God allowed Paul to scatter the church, but it was when they were scattered that evangelism really truly took off. When they started preaching the message, so even what was a bad thing, God intended for good to to kind of kick them out of the nest to get them ready to go out and share the gospel wow. with others. And so, um, the the point being that you know it may have been that some of them for a while did while the church was taking off. 
I don't think that means they left the ministry. If even if they no. were to have done it for a while, I don't know that there's evidence that they did. But uh, I, you know, I think we do see that Paul was a tent maker. Uh, but here again, even if they did for a while, it doesn't mean they left the ministry. Um, I do think the teachings of, of Paul tells us that many of them lived off the gospel, which means that they were in full-time ministry, as, as mm. the, if, if they were able to do so. Not all of them could. Right. So, during the time spent with the disciples, what was Jesus' body like? So, like, for example... Um, after the resurrection, he was in his physical body, but mysteriously showed up in a locked room, um, you know, in the physics of that resurrected body. Well, that, that, that's, that would be something fascinating to know. <laughs> it, it, um, you know, but here again, we can only kind of speculate with the, with the evidence we have. We do see that Jesus did do physical things um he was touched we see that thomas most likely touched the nail prints in his hands the the language in um, the gospel suggests that mary had grabbed on to jesus and jesus Mm -hmm. when he says don't cling to me mary he's not saying some translations say touch me not you know touch me not because i haven't ascended in my head the the greek text seems to say Stop clinging to me. It's as if Mary yeah. just grabbed hold of him and wouldn't let him go. Wouldn't let go. Yeah. I'm not letting go now. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so he says, Stop clinging to me. I, I've got to go. I still have to ascend to my father. And so they touched Jesus. They saw Jesus. They um, ate with Jesus. Jesus did very physical things, but yet he's able to somehow or another appear and disappear in and out of rooms, walk through walls, it appears like. Um, but yet he eats broiled fish, which is an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. The, the resurrected, glorified body. It, it, so here, here, first and foremost, there's a distinction needs to be made between the resurrected body, glorified body, and a resuscitated body. There's a difference between someone dying, having a near-death experience, and coming back from the resurrected body of Jesus. Jesus now has a body that will never die. It's a glorified body. It's a spiritual body. It's the merging together of the physical and spiritual in in unity. Mm. And um, this looks very different than the bodies we have. It is physical, but it is blended with the spiritual. there could be some things going on in the quantum realm that we don't know of, uh, but right. th- there is this 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 eternal nature of the body. There are the new powers, new abilities with this body, and the body never decays; it never fails. It, it's it is going to be a physical body, but it is enmeshed in harmony with the spiritual, so that just as the spirit is eternal, this spiritual body. Physical body, spiritual physical body will be eternal in like manner. Mm-hmm. So right now yeah. it's like we have a soul in a body, but the spiritual body will be a a spirit with a body, <laughs> if you want to put it like that. Okay, uh, it, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a different dynamic. I was talking to one guy one time who put it. He gave an illustration. I liked it well. I really, yeah, that was a great illustration. He said he imagines. That, uh, you know, right now we have the spiritual, we have the physical. They're two sides of the very same coin. And when we're in this side, 
we're in this physical dimension and there's this spiritual dimension that we can't see. But he thinks that death is going to be flipping that coin so that we're in the spiritual, but there's a connection with uh, that uh, physical. Well, I think that this new body is going to eliminate the barrier. It's going to be a complete blending together of spirit and body in a, in a complete perfected form. It's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah. So I remember us covering some of the dimensions that are all part of the just all part of of heaven and God and all of these things in yeah, at I least think, 11 and maybe even even as many as 28 well, or more oh my goodness <laughs> i think somebody's read a book on that <laughs> well, you know, but, I, I, honestly, Hugh Ross, I mean, again, I don't know what a person's perspective is on young earth, old earth, but he has actually written some stuff on this. Um, speaking of the dimension, the interdimensionality of God, uh, that mm-hmm. no matter how many dimensions there are, God is in all of them and even beyond those dimensions. That's just cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you can and even you know say what? that he holds the dimensions together, you know. Yeah, and you know, kind of thinking about this, this statement, this conversation we're having, we if we are in heaven and we figure out, or we get information, or we get to see all of those dimensions, God will still have another dimension for us to discover. Yeah, it may be that it's endless. It may be that there are endless dimensions that could be discovered. That's crazy. I don't know. I mean, this we again goes back to what Doctor Daniel Mitchell at Liberty said: the more you study God, the bigger God becomes. Not that we make God bigger, but we realize just how big He really is. He is bigger and badder. Not bad in the bad sense, but bad in the good sense. Bigger and badder than we ever can imagine. Yeah. So, on to the next one. Did the early church view the resurrection as the turning point of the Jewish fulfillment of the Messiah? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what you mean by this, but I'll answer it with this. Um, The early church believed, and I think this would be something that we hold as well, that the, the idea of the Messiah coming was that the Messiah would be would come at the last days, the eschaton, would bring in finality to all of history. And in some ways, Jesus did, because Jesus fulfilled many of the prophecies written by him. There are still yet other prophecies to be fulfilled that will happen when he returns and he sets up the kingdom and then eternity that that's to come. But they believed that the ushering in of the kingdom of God brought in the eschaton, the the end of history, the last days, so to speak. Mm. We can say that we're in the last days now, but we've been in the last days ever since Jesus came because Mm -hmm. Jesus ushered in that last dispensation before the millennial reign, that last dispensation of grace offered by God to the world. And so we are living in the last days. But we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Again, a, a day is to God, a thousand years to God is as one, a thousand years to us is as one day to God. Uh, 
And so 2,000 years would be just like two days to God, you know. Mm. So how long do we wait till he, Jesus returns? Intent. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, the answer is until the last soul was saved. God knows how yeah. many souls will be saved. And when the last soul is saved, he'll allow the time of tribulation to come. There will be a few souls saved during that time. Um, but then, I mean, that age is going to be an age of judgment anyhow. But then the the final time comes, uh, the millennial reign happens. That's going to be a time where Christ subjugates all nations under his authority. And then finally bringing in the end, uh, the eternal age. Yeah. And when, you know, so here's one thing that I hear a lot of people um talking about we we talk about um you you just mentioned about that we are in the last days since since jesus since that time period now this far extended past that we are in the last days and we are getting closer and closer to the last day from every day that we leave past the resurrection okay a lot of people that i've heard in discussion on this either they they play that light almost like yeah 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 that's just going to be an easy answer you know because you're just you know um, giving an easy answer to the last days but yet really if you look at at how it was explained scripturally it it makes sense it, it makes sense to us. Yeah. So, so Jesus' teachings, we see this from Jesus' teachings. Most scholars believe that Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God, even skeptical scholars believe that his teachings of the kingdom of God are authentic to Jesus. Um, so, so the whole idea, so Jesus presents the kingdom as an already not yet kingdom. The kingdom has come already. We're in the kingdom of God. If you're, a, if you're, if Christ is the Lord of your life, and you're in this new covenant, you're already in the new kingdom of God. So the kingdom is here. You know, we are all, all already under the authority. We're all under this. We're all subjugated to the authority of Christ already. But everything hasn't been subjugated politically. Everything hasn't been subjugated. Uh, kingdom-wise yet. We're already living in the kingdom, but it hasn't been finalized just yet. So that's why it's called an already not yet kingdom. The kingdom is here, but it ha- everything hasn't been fulfilled yet. So mm-hmm. the the ushering in the, of the kingdom of God with Jesus, as evidenced by the Holy Spirit, by the way, that's a fulfillment of the prophecy back in the book of Joel, where he said, your young men will have visions, your old men will dream dreams, the Spirit of God is going to come down upon the men and women, your maidservants and uh, freed individuals, it's going to come down upon every single person who professes the name of God. The Spirit's going to come down and it's going to happen in the last days. Again, that happened at Pentecost. And we're, it's fl- flowing from there even to the present time. So we are in the last days. We've been in the last days since Christ has come. That's a teaching of Jesus. I think that's a teaching. That's the understanding of the early church. And um, right. I, I don't necessarily see why that would be necessarily even be a, a pat answer or an easy answer. I think especially if we can show that uh, that was the understanding of Jesus and the early church. Um because again, if we if we look at this from the paradigm 
which I don't know that we even could, but if we were to imagine ourselves looking at this from the paradigm of God, even if this goes 4,000 years before the return of Christ, it's just going to be a blip in history to God, an eternal God. Sure. Yeah. So, so, again, from our perspective, it may seem like it's taking a long time, but from God's perspective, it's just a no time at all. Yeah. So, did the beginnings of the unified church start forming during this 40 days? Yeah, I think the I think the church was unified uh, from the time of the resurrection. Uh, they didn't know. I mean, it, it was all too new to them to know what sure. to do and start getting divided over issues because they weren't expecting this. Again, if you look at uh, the understandings of different Jewish sects, um, different groupings, I don't think any of them anticipated the Messiah to be risen from the dead just after his crucifixion. I mean, to be crucified on a tree, I mean, who would have even thought that for a Messiah? I mean, that would be juxtaposed to any idea of the Messiah because the book of Deuteronomy says that anyone hung, hanged on a tree or hung on a tree is accursed. So yeah. no one would have thought that to be the case. That's why when the disciples saw Jesus crucified on the tree, they knew that he was accursed. So they thought, well, there goes, there goes our movement. Uh, how are we going to convince anyone to worship this guy, let alone serve him, if this guy's listed as the law as being accursed? But it took the resurrection to for the Father to verify everything that Jesus said and did to redeem Jesus. Mm. Not that Jesus needed saving because he was a perfect son of God, the Lamb of God, but to redeem the message, to redeem the um, the atonement that had taken place mm. by Christ. On a tree. Powerful. Absolutely. So, down to the last question here. Was there potential for creeds and unified prayer to form during this time while, while Jesus was with them? So, I guess my question kind of leans into, was Jesus actually around in the midst of these starts of these creeds and unified prayers. Yeah, I, I think I think the prayers and well, and and I don't want to get into my dissertation before I get my dissertation right. going. Uh, but let me just say that in my research for my dissertation, I have come across reasons to believe that some things uh, in the Gospels, some things um, in the New Testament dates back to even the time of Jesus du during his ministry. Now, again, that's very early. This is, this is <laughs> again, I don't want to give away anything because I, I haven't even got it you know, the proposal done. I haven't gotten it approved. So, approved, so, you know, I may be, you know, counting my chickens before they're hatched. But um, I want to read to you uh, uh, something that Richard Balkum says. And this is on page uh, 235 uh, of his book, uh, Jesus and the God of Israel, God Crucified, and Other Studies on the New Testament's Christology of, of Divine Identity. Richard Bauckham is uh, Professor Emeritus of New Testament Studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and Senior Scholar at Ridley Hall in Cambridge. Okay, so this is what he says. 
God's, so he wasn't a wasn't a small guy. No, 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 big major guy. God's God rule, has some knowledge. Yeah, God's rule over all things, and I quote, defines who God is. It cannot be delegated as mere function to a creature. Here's the here's the point. Thus, the earliest Christology was already in Nusay, the highest Christology. All that remained was to work through consistently and what it could mean for Jesus to belong integrally to the unique identity of the one God. Early Christian interest was primarily in soteriology and eschatology, the concerns of the gospel, and so in the New Testament, it is primarily in sharing or implementing God's eschatological lordship that Jesus is understood to belong to the identity of God. That's not coming from a strict fundamentalist conservative Christian. Right. That's coming from a high-ranking scholar in New Testament studies. Hmm. Yeah. So then the early church held to the truth that Christ was who he said he was and the the cross as baffling as it was to those that were um, at screen level right at the face of it um, the more I'm, I'm assuming the more the more they were able to pull back and look at the overall of what just happened they realize who Jesus was and what was going on at that time absolutely you know the, the creeds are just simply summations or summations of of important details one of the traits of the the early creeds is that there's a rhythmic pattern to them it's almost like as if they have mnemonic devices that help them to remember the material mm-hmm. uh, kind of like the chorus of a song you know i mean it may be that you remember um many details of a song's verses, but but maybe don't quite know all the verses, but you remember the chorus because there's something striking about the chorus that is easy to remember. Mm-hmm. The same thing with these early creeds. Um, Bart Ehrman says that the first, and again, this is agnostic New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, he says that the 1 Corinthians chapter 15 creed dates to no later than two years after the crucifixion of Jesus. <laughs> I believe it's Richard Balcom or James D.G. Dunn. I can't remember which of the two it is. But one of them suggests that it may even be within months of Jesus' crucifixion. So it very well even may be, if you say, you know, you're talking about, what, a month and almost a month and a half, not quite that, but yeah. almost 40 days, uh, it could have easily been that some of these things were already formulating during yeah, the period of time between go. between the cross, between the resurrection and the ascension. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that to me that to me just is is uh some verifying evidence that that really should really should be um I guess promoted or talked about more, I think, than what it has been. Um and I think we need to do ourselves some service as Christians and start asking these kind of questions. Um and searching them out, I, I think it'd be really good to have these in the uh, in the firepower of of the hands of just common 
everyday church going Christians, not not uh, not these big apologists, but actually, what does Jay Warner Wallace call us? Um, we don't need a million dollar apologist. One dollar apologist. Yeah, there you go. We need we need uh, we need a million one dollar apologists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's there's a lot of truth to that, and I think this kind of information getting out, and the more and more we talk about it, I think. Um, I think is is such a big key to holding the truth to Christianity. Well, and I think there's another benefit to it as well. I think the more we train ourselves in these issues, asking these questions, getting this as part in the mental state of our being, then when someone comes with a question, a challenging question to us, we're not going to give a quick, uh, hasty response. We'll be able to give a winsome defense of the faith uh, using even some of the best material that we have. I mean, mm-hmm. w- we've got to just understand we live in a meme world. We may not have time, or the you know, the time to parse out these deep issues. But just having some of these things in our mental framework, uh, we, we can easily spit them out. We can easily bring them forth, and it'll help us to defend the faith and and to provide hope to individuals. And mm. and honestly. It's not just about defending the faith. It's it's about proclaiming the hope that we have in Jesus, because yeah, giving um, that hope, yeah, giving that hope, distributing that hope, allowing people to know that there is a God who loves them mm-hmm. unconditionally and wants to save them. Um, right. That's that's one of the most powerful truths I believe that exists in the world. That God loves yeah. us. He actually likes us. <laughs> it's hard to believe he likes me, awesome. but he actually likes us and wants to save us. So, if if we here, here's how I always look at this: if we train ourselves to ask the questions, when somebody else asks the question to us, we've already gone through that, and so the offense to that question is already gone and removed. So we're able to actually focus in on the ministry of being able to help somebody along. We may not have the question, we may not have the answer, but if we've already asked the question to ourselves, hey, what happened here? What about this? What about that? It it allows us to actually pull back and be able to have a, a ability to help somebody work through that. And one thing I've learned, and I'm not a master at this, I'm working on it, is that when people have questions... Answer the question with a question. Present the information in such a way, in a question form, so they have to really think and ponder on it and own the material for themselves so that we're not just giving them information, uh, but we're we're actually challenging them to ask the same type of questions. Again, I'm not a master at this. I'm working on it. I'm still a work in progress on this on this, but but helping yeah. people to ask the right questions for themselves and seeking out that information too, yeah. being willing to give them the answers if they're if they're willing to hear, but just ask challenging questions, provocative questions that will really get their mind spinning and get them as Jay as uh, not Jay Warner Wallace, but as Greg Kokel says, to put a stone in their shoe. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's been good. And we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and a reliable source of information. 
Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. For this month's Night Sky Report, we give you information from NASA. What's up for April? Morning planets, a sunset arch, and finding Leo the lion. The morning sky on April 6th finds Jupiter and Saturn forming a lovely trio with the crescent moon. Look for them low in the southeast in the hour before sunrise. April 22nd is Earth Day an annual opportunity to collectively appreciate the wonder and beauty of our home planet. So it seems appropriate to feature an Earth-related sight you can see any time of the year when you have clear skies. It's a twilight phenomenon that you might have noticed just after sunset. If you can pull your gaze away from the sunset in the west and spin yourself around to face east, you'll often notice a band of pink or orange-colored sky with a darker, bluish band underneath. These bands move upward over the minutes following sunset to form an arch across the sky that slowly fades as night sets in. The dark band is Earth's shadow rising. Above it, the rosy-hued band is known as the Belt of Venus. We observe this sight for a short time after sunset when the sun is just below the horizon, but some of its light rays are still making their way through the atmosphere before nightfall. The redder or longer wavelengths of sunlight are able to travel the longest distance through the atmosphere, and at the point opposite to the sunset, this reddish light is scattered off the atmosphere and back toward your eyes. The belt of Venus is named not for the planet, but for the mythical goddess. Together with Earth's shadow, these sites form the anti-twilight arch. This arch rises like a curtain on the night, slowly fading as Earth's shadow eventually fills the sky, allowing us to gaze outward into the stars. You can see this sight in morning twilight as well by looking in the direction opposite the rising sun, that is, toward the west. As the sky begins to lighten, Earth's shadow becomes noticeable with the belt of Venus above it, and these bands slowly sink to the horizon as day breaks. April is a great time to look for Leo. That is the constellation, Leo. Leo is the Latin word for lion, and this well-known grouping of stars is named for a super-powered lion vanquished by the mythical hero Hercules. It's a pretty easy constellation to locate because it sort of looks like a lion reclining in the sky and has this recognizable curving shape called the sickle that represents the lion's head. In April, you can find Leo high overhead in the south in the first few hours after sunset. In addition to the sickle shape of the lion's head, look for the lion's heart. 
the brilliant bluish-white star Regulus, which is one of the brightest stars in the sky. Astronomers think most stars have a family of planets orbiting them. And these two bright stars in Leo, named Algeba, which is actually a double star, and Rasselas, each have a confirmed planet larger than Jupiter orbiting around them. So step out after dark in April to look for Leo with its sickle-shaped lion's mane and blazing bluish heart. Here are the phases of the moon for April. First quarter, April 4th, new moon, you April 11th, on all of NASA's missions 20th, to the solar quarter, system and beyond and at NASA.gov. full moon after that. I'm Preston Dykes from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and that's what's up for this month. And this has been your April 2021 Night Sky Report, brought to you by NASA. Thank you.